Grab a bowl of conch salad, take a sip of a gombe smash, and listen closely. Because the Bahamas is in all sunshine, this is the dark side of paradise. Each episode, you will hear the retelling of crime stories and folk tales from the Bahamas. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Our goal is to shed a light on stories from the Bahamas and to ensure they aren't forgotten or lost to history. We do our best to research each story and to honor the subjects we discuss. Episode 3, No Fun in the Sun. The year was 1998 on the eve of the opening of the Atlantis Resort and Casino owned by South African entrepreneur Saul Kersner. Located on Paradise Island in the Bahamas, just a short drive across the bridge from the capital of Nassau. It was summertime and the island was filled with tourists and hundreds of foreign construction workers who were working as quickly as they could to ensure the resort would be ready for its grand opening in December. Not just an island containing resorts, Paradise Island was home to numerous celebrities and wealthy individuals from all over the world who owned luxury homes there. Along with hundreds of thousands of visitors each year, Paradise Island was a major tourist destination for the country. Vacationers lined the white sands of Cabbage Beach on Paradise Island. There, locals sold jet ski rides while women offered to braid the hair of female tourists for a modest fee. Both would patrol the beaches all hours of the day for willing customers, a popular job on the island, especially during the summer when visitor numbers to the Bahamas are at their highest. And with the opening of the resort and casino only months away, two young women journeyed to the island excited to spend the next few days of their vacations exploring and taking in all there was to do and see. One of them was 32-year-old teacher Lori Fogelman of Virginia, who came to the island during the month of July at the invitation of her friend Philippe de Rosier a construction worker at the yet-to-open Atlantis Resort and Casino. During the day, Lori spent her time swimming or tanning on the beach, and at night would socialize with her friend Philippe, drinking and clubbing with other visitors. But Lori, wanting to explore more of the island, rented a car and traveled alone. But when two days had gone by and Philippe hadn't seen or heard from Lori, he became worried and contacted the local police. The police combed Paradise Island, and the media employed the public to come forward with any information that could aid in the safe recovery of Lori Fogelman. Her friend Philippe de Rosier was the prime suspect, and was even brought in for questioning by local authorities. But they couldn't connect de Rosier to Fogelman's disappearance, and he was released. Other suspects in the area, like the local vendors working on Cabbage Beach, were questioned, but were also released due to the lack of evidence. And not just the public worried for their own safety, but visitors as well. They were scared that a white woman had disappeared on an island known for being a safe place for tourists, and police were yet to charge anyone with a crime. Then, shortly after, sometime during the month of August, another woman disappeared. Joanne Clark, a 24-year-old teaching assistant from Oxfordshire, England, who, like Lori, had come to the Bahamas at the invitation of her friend Margaret, who was working on the island taking care of a boy with special needs. Joanne had experience taking care of children, and jumped at the opportunity to spend her vacation in the Bahamas with her friend. On a bright sunny day in August, Joanne, her friend Margaret, and a small boy whose family Margaret worked for, spent the day at an area called Cabbage Beach located on Paradise Island. But when Margaret needed to leave unexpectedly for work, the two agreed that she would return for Clark in a few hours. But when Margaret did return for her friend, Joanne was nowhere to be found. Worried for her safety, she contacted the local police and soon after, a missing persons report was filed on her behalf. 
This was now the second female tourist to disappear on Paradise Island, and its reputation as a safe and fun destination for vacationers was now in question. The news of the Atlantis Resort and Casino, expected to be the largest of its kind in the Bahamas, with thousands of jobs at stake, hundreds of millions of dollars invested, and its grand opening looming, its fanfare was being overshadowed by the stories of the two missing women. The police and government were careful to avoid using the word serial killer, as the small island nation's economy relied heavily on tourism to survive. Over 50% of the island's population worked in hospitality and tourism, and word of a serial killer lurking in the Bahamas was not good for the country's main source of income. Hotels on Paradise Island doubled and tripled their security, and the local Bahamian police force increased patrols. But without any arrest, the public and the foreigners visiting the island didn't feel any safer. The largest hotel in the country's history was being built not far from where Joanne Clark disappeared. The police pressed the public and scoured the walking paths behind Cabbage Beach, and a startling discovery was made just one day after Joanne Clark had gone missing. In a shallow grave covered with twigs and sand obscured by overgrown bushes and trees, the body of 24-year-old Joanne Clark was discovered dead, not far from a walking path behind Cabbage Beach. From the state in which she was found, police suspected that she had been sexually assaulted before she was eventually strangled to death. To their surprise, while forensic teams and police were investigating the scene, they were shocked when buried nearby less than 50 feet away from Joanne Clark was the body of the first woman to disappear, Lori Fogelman. It was suspected by police that Lori too had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death, but her body was so badly decomposed that she was almost impossible to identify. The timing of the girls' disappearances with the opening of the resort only months away made solving the two cases the police and the government's top priority. A special task force was created, and even the country's leaders at the time, the Prime Minister, the Right Honorable Hubert Ingram, and his Deputy Prime Minister, took active and public roles in the cases. During a press conference, a reward of $200,000 was offered for any information that led to the arrest of the person or persons involved with the disappearances of the two women. The public immediately took notice of the double standard being displayed, as many Bahamians felt local murders were not investigated with the same urgency or provided the same resources as those perpetrated on tourists, and the government, surely not the Prime Minister or his deputy, would involve themselves in a local murder investigation. The police had yet to make any arrests since the disappearances of both Joanne Clark and Lori Fogelman. The government requested the assistance of Scotland Yard and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to assist in the case, and investigators arrived on the island to aid the local police department. The police were under a tremendous amount of pressure to bring in any suspects related to the gruesome crimes or risk a decline in tourists visiting the island. One of the women was from the United Kingdom and the newspapers there and across the country said exactly what everyone was thinking but didn't want to say, that because of the fashion in which they were killed, there must be a serial killer lurking on Paradise Island who had yet to be caught. Philippe de Rosier was questioned in Laurie Fogelman's disappearance and was brought in again when the bodies of both she and Joanne Clark were discovered. But like before, he wasn't charged. The previous DNA samples he provided to authorities cleared him of any wrongdoing in Fogelman's case. And also, he was physically out of the country during the murder and discovery of Joanne Clark. He was released and the police were no closer to discovering the true killer than when they began their investigation. A reward had been announced to the public, but the police were still without any leads. 
They rounded up a number of local men who worked on Cabbage Beach, the last place Joanne Clark was seen by her friend Margaret before she vanished. One of those locals was a partially blind and deaf 18-year-old man with mental handicaps named Tanel Anton McIntosh, born in the capital of Nassau. The men were interrogated and evidence like DNA was collected, but none of the men were charged and they were all released. But weeks later, after the results of the test had been confirmed, the police charged into the home of Tanel Anton McIntosh's mother and arrested him for the murders of Lori Fogelman and Joanne Clark. Although McIntosh's mother protested his innocence, the police were sure they had arrested the right man. She couldn't fathom her son having done something so horrific. The people from his community didn't believe it either, and they collected funds from neighbors to mount and pay for his defense. Although the police were forbidden by law to discuss any developments in the case with the public, it leaked to the media that the police had collected DNA evidence from Tanel McIntosh and had matched semen found in the body of Joanne Clark. Clark's autopsy stated that she had been hit in the head with a blunt object, sexually assaulted, and possibly tortured as burn marks were discovered on her legs and thighs. The police announced after his arrest that they had also taped a confession of McIntosh admitting to the crimes, but when the court case over the murders began some months later, McIntosh was no longer defenseless. He was now defended by Godfrey Pro Pinder, a lawyer in the Bahamas who was known for taking on risky cases that other lawyers wouldn't even consider. Because of the proximity of both bodies to each other and the physical evidence connecting McIntosh to Joanne Clark's case, the prosecution attempted to use that same evidence to prove McIntosh's connection to Lori Fogelman as well. But during the trial, McIntosh's attorney suggested that the local police force, under pressure from the Bahamian government for a quick resolution to the case to avoid losing the country's reputation of a safe tourist destination, coerced Tanel Anton McIntosh into confessing by beating him. In the video-recorded confession, McIntosh speaks about his encounter with Lori Fogelman. McIntosh explains that he was on Cabbage Beach selling coconuts to tourists. Fogelman requested a coconut but refused to pay for it because she didn't like the taste of the water inside. He and Fogelman argued and infuriated, he hit her in the head with a rock and dragged her body off the beach and hid it from view. In the courtroom, Lori Fogelman's relatives had traveled to the Bahamas for the case to see justice served for their loved one. They listened to the horrific details revolving the murder of Lori and suffered through each heart-wrenching detail as the case proceeded. Tanel McIntosh claimed he and his mother had taken a trip to a nearby island during the time the murders had been committed and couldn't be the one responsible. When McIntosh took to the stand and testified in front of the jury that he had been beaten by police and forced to say the incriminating statements, the public and the jury began to wonder if the whole confession had been fabricated by the authorities. Tourists and celebrities were already traveling to the island for the opening of the country's largest resort, and there was a serious concern growing that the police had rushed to charge McIntosh in the hopes of alleviating any concerns foreigners might have over traveling to the island. McIntosh's mother also claimed that he was beaten and choked multiple times while he was being held in police custody, and his lawyers spoke about his mental state and the unlikeliness that his client could have committed these crimes due to his handicaps. Fogelman's body had been buried at the beach a month before Joanne Clark had been killed, and her body was too badly decomposed to determine a cause of death. Now, with the video confession in doubt, with accusations of evidence tampering and police brutality, the video or his written confession couldn't be admitted into evidence, nor could the DNA evidence from the Clark case, and as a result, 
the jury would not unanimously decide on whether or not to sentence Tanel Anton McIntosh over the crimes committed against Lori Fogelman. The courts would have to decide whether or not to order a retrial, and McIntosh fell to his knees with joy over the verdict. He left the courtroom in handcuffs with an eerie grin from ear to ear as he was led away waiting to stand trial for the second murder, that of Joanne Clark, the 24-year-old teacher's assistant from England. Lloyd Fogelman's family members that were present for the trial returned home disappointed but not defeated in any way. Tanel McIntosh was still incarcerated and the courts were yet to decide if Lloyd Fogelman's case would be thrown out or if there would be a retrial with a new jury. At the second murder and rape trial, the prosecution, unlike the first case, was able to have both the DNA evidence and video confession admitted into evidence. It's unclear why the courts were only now willing to consider the evidence from Clark's case that had been previously presented during the Lori Fogelman trial but was deemed inadmissible. Some wondered if perhaps the government was hoping to correct the outcome of the first trial by allowing the evidence in the case, but there was also another factor at play that a new jury was deciding the facts. The original evidence and test results positively matched Tanel Anton McIntosh's DNA nearly 100% to the semen collected from Joanne Clark's clothing. It's strange that the original evidence in both cases wasn't enough to convict McIntosh the first time. Why did this jury not believe that he had been coerced as well and the evidence tampered with? Perhaps the country and the jury were ready for the trial to conclude and for the Bahamas to be removed from headlines that painted the country negatively. The jury deliberated for hours and later returned with a guilty verdict for both the rape and murder of Joanne Clark. McIntosh hung his head low as he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. The family of Lori Fogelman would also receive justice, where at his retrial over her murder, Tanel Anton McIntosh was convicted of manslaughter and faced up to 20 years in prison for his crimes. The difference this time that made a conviction possible was that the evidence collected from Joanne Clark and McIntosh which had been deemed inadmissible in the first case, was now allowed as evidence in the trial. The jury was able to connect the dots, and Tanel McIntosh would spend the rest of his life behind bars. Joanne Clark and Lori Fogelman, two women each described as talented caregivers with beaming personalities liked by all who encountered them. But while visiting the Bahamas with plans of fun in the sun, each met similar fates behind the Cabbage Beach on Paradise Island. The trees behind Cabbage Beach at the location both Clark and Fogelman's bodies were discovered were wrapped with ribbons and a small collection of flowers amassed at their base to honor the memory of the two women slain while on vacation. Soon after, the property where the murders took place was redeveloped by a resort and was no longer accessible to the general public. The security at Paradise Island was increased tremendously. A police department was placed on the island and today the resort employs its own army of security guards and an impressive array of video surveillance to ensure guests are protected and law and order upheld. Paradise Island today has a sprawling water-style theme park, a number of resorts and restaurants featuring worldwide and local cuisines. The island is still home to numerous mega mansions owned by celebrities and is visited yearly by hundreds of thousands of tourists from around the globe unaware of the dark history that lingers but does not define the island. Compared with the capital of Nassau located a short drive across one of two bridges that control the main access to and from the island, Paradise Island remains one of the safest places to visit in the Bahamas. Its never-ending list of tours, excursions, restaurants, luxury shopping, and entertainment for its visitors is unparalleled, and if you ever have the chance to visit the Atlantis Resort and Casino, modeled after the mythical lost city of Atlantis, it's a sight to behold. 
As always, you can learn more about us on our website at www.thedarksideofparadise.com. And tune in every two weeks for another Bahamian crime story or folktale. And remember, it's not always sunny in the Bahamas. I'm your host, Stephen Fountain. Thanks for listening.